so um, welcome to Friday Gallery Talks. Um, and just to give you a little bit of an idea about what a Friday Gallery Talk is, it is a, a talk in the galleries on Friday. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a half an hour, um, it's an opportunity for about a half an hour to focus on one or two works. And especially with the Ponza collection, because the galleries are divided by artists, it's a great opportunity to talk about these works. Um, and generally what we like to do is bring in um, speakers, presenters, who come from a variety of fields, who are both, um, who are either artists, scholars, writers, historians, um, to give their own perspective and to give kind of their own take on a work so that we can support this dialogue that happens between people's um, perspectives or subjectivity and then also kind of art history in general. So, and, and the collection. So, we're really happy to have um, our speaker here, Howard uh, Singerman, and I'm going to do a little introduction where I have to look at notes. So. Um, he's a professor of contemporary art and theory at the University of Virginia. He's taught art history at Barnard College um, and art departments in art schools, including UCLA, California Institute of the Arts, and the Art Center College of Design in Pasadena. His, um, he, his book, Art Subjects, Making Artists in the American University, is one of the first examinations of professional education of contemporary artists and um, the, construct, the construction of artistic subjectivity, which is a really interesting subject, I think. Um, and I think he, he brought that research and that interest into a catalog essay he wrote for something called Public Offerings, which was an exhibit that was done at the Museum of Contemporary in Los Angeles. Um, he's also written for Art in America, Art Forum, Parquet, and October. He's contributed to numerous exhibition catalogs, including uh, Mike Kelly, Catholic Tastes, Chris Burden, A 20-Year Survey, and A Force of Signs, um, Art in the Crisis of rep Representation. Um, he's currently working on a book, um, tentatively entitled, is it still called Art History After Sherry Levine? Yeah. Levine? <laughs> Levine. And, um, this is an examination of that artist and the impact she had on art history in the 20th century. So it's always really hard probably to talk after an introduction, but um, we like to think of these as more informal, and we like to think of them as, at some point, we welcome opening up questions, because the idea of a dialogue is something we're really excited about here. So without further ado, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, and thank you all for showing up on this completely miserable day. And, um, I, I, too, have a few notes, and I hope you don't mind to keep things straight. Um, I picked this room when Ryan called me and said, Do you, we would like you to talk about something in the Ponza collection. I picked Richard Nonis because I thought he was the sort of outlier in the collection, the work that looked least like everything else along the um, circle. And as I came up to see the installation of the collection um, last month, um, I noted that in one way or another that this is both the simplest and the most difficult room uh, in the um, collection. Simplest for reasons you can probably all divine already, thinking that you could go home with a table saw or go to your um, um, supplier of steel, assuming you could still afford it in today's construction economy, and, um, and, and purchase, because much of the stuff comes, as it were, measured off the rack, and the way in which it is made is quite simple. To install these works, or to uninstall these works, is to make and unmake them every time. To lean three slabs of steel one atop another, to layer smaller um, 
cubes of wood on top of a larger run of wood, simple enough, to take apart the small angle on the wall, or to put it up again, is to redo it. Which is a very different way than one might think about the sculpture that the Hirshhorn shows in its permanent collection, the works on pedestals out at the um, center of the donut, or the um, center of, of the ring. Difficult, I think, because the question raised by works that are so insistently simple is, because, um, is big questions like, how come you consider this a work of art? Or why is this work in here? And I hope to say about three things about that. Um, and then also, the other works within the Ponza collection are very talkative. You may have noticed that up till maybe you get to the room next door, the Doug Wheeler big light rectangle, or perhaps the Robert Irwin before that, the disc lit from four sides, that the works are busy telling you what they're doing or how they're made. They're about the same as their captions. And in fact, in certain works, like a red rubber ball thrown into the sea, they are the same as their captions. Um, and their captions are simply positioned in different ways. The Doug Wheeler, uh, pardon me, the Douglas Hubler behind you, or the uh, uh, Joseph Kosuth beyond that, are works that make clear their linguistic sources and their linguistic completion, as the neon light in the Kosuth installation has it self-defined. Nonus's work is much more difficult to figure out that way, that there isn't a kind of um, obviousness that isn't the same as its material obviousness. So how it is that one makes a richer nonus, why it is significant or valuable, um, why it should even be interesting, you could say, is one of the questions that's raised to us by both its insistent simplicity and the fact that it's not telling us anything at all except sort of how to put it together, um, if you will. Now, Ponza himself, uh, Count Ponza, um, who put this collection together, had put together previously a collection that I got to know when I worked in Los Angeles at the Museum of Contemporary Art, a much more recognizably art-like collection of Mark Rothko's and Franz Klein's and Robert Rauschenberg's and Klaus Oldenberg's and Roy Lichtenstein's and Rosenquist's, things that one can see here in the permanent collection or at the National Gallery down on the bottom floor things that look like paintings, first of all, and therefore look like art. This collection, and maybe the, um, the Nonus Room in particular, is a, is a room that kind of challenges that, again, because of the um, apparent simplicity of the work. Ponza talks about, I have a quote from Ponza, which is quite nice, about Richard Nonus, and let me put that in sort of evidence, or to start with. Nonus is the most radical of the minimalist artists that I collected in the 60s and 70s. He transformed his anthropological search for the primordial nature of human beings into his sculpture. The anthropological search, not yet getting to primordial nature of things, the anthropological search he's referring to is that Nonus is in fact not trained as an artist. He's trained as an anthropologist. He went to the University of Michigan and then received a BA from Lafayette College in anthropology. He went on and did a master's degree in social anthropology at the University of North Carolina, where he completed an MA degree on the uh, Cree Nation um, in northern Ontario around James Bay. And then over the course of 10 to 12 years did field work in the Yukon, again in northern Ontario, archeological digs in Georgia in um, Native American sites, 
and um, in uh, northern Mexico and in the southern United States, again, in archaeological um, Native American sites, and publishes as an anthropologist. Until while at Columbia, again, to, complete a, to begin a PhD in um, social anthropology, he becomes involved in art making and begins to make work um, or try to make art on and off while still studying anthropology. Um, until 1970, in New York and Paris he does this, until 1970 when he's given the use of the studio of Marc de Suvereau. Now Marc de Suvereau is probably one of the most important sculptors of the second half of the 20th century. There's a great big large one outside in the sculpture garden here. It's the kind of red-orange um, piece um, called, I wrote this down so I wouldn't forget. Um, uh, Our Years What for Marianne Moore, for the poet Marianne Moore. When you leave the museum, you'll see it. One of the things I would remark about the de Suvereau is while it's made of the same material, that is to say it's made of steel, there's a crucial difference between it and Richard Nonis and what he's, his, Richard Nonis's baseline, so to speak. The de Suvereau is vertical. Like a whole history of sculpture, it is vertical. It stands in for the standing figure. And in fact, as we know in Washington, D.C., better than most places, for centuries, there was no distinction between sculpture and statue. They were the same thing. It was a statue of a person. The person could be on a horse, or on the top of a building, or in a niche within a building. But sculptures were vertical, and they were closed and figurative. Now, the 20th century, as the sculpture garden out here, and as much of this work um, in the collection suggests, the figure goes away. But the verticality doesn't go away. And for a long time, the closure doesn't go, go away. And the works of Henry Moore or Beverly Pepper or other people in the, um, in the sculpture garden. Within the 20th century, one gets an idea of assembled sculpture, like the de Suvereau or like the works at the like the David Smith that's just outside in the ring here, inside. But the works remain built up against gravity. Gravity is the kind of central organizing form of the works of uh, Richard Nonis. The way things hold together is that one thing leans on another. They're dependent rather than independent. They don't fight gravity so much as employ it as a way to get something to sit on something else. And that way of making sculpture, and indeed the putting of sculpture down on the ground, is a development that comes out of the 1960s. And it is a big development, <laughs> as the fanfare suggests. So, so unlike the pedestal-bound sculptures or sculptures that exist on pedestals, the work of minimalism of Carl Andre and Richard Nonis and other begin to operate on the floor, begin to use the same space that you stand in to get you to walk around them, to get you to move around them, and to understand you're moving as a kind of measurement and maybe even a feeling of your own bodily weight against the work um, that's offered. There's an interesting comment I found out or tracked down about Richard Nonis, about his field work. It's in this memoir of a retiring anthropology professor in, um, at the University of North Carolina. 
And one of his former students is remembering what the culture of anthropology there was like in the um, early 60s. And they remember Richard Nonis. Not noting that he's an artist, they do note this. Richard Nonis was questioning at that time in 1963-64 whether even the most elemental observations by the field worker were not so skewed and shaped by his peculiar disciplinary background to say nothing of being simply ephemeral observations, as seriously to question the objective validity of fieldwork's results. Objective validity might be what he's after in these works. Their validity is, in a sense, their carrying out or their being able to be assembled and reassembled each time, to not work against their materiality, to not work against the weight of steel, the rigidity of steel, the size it has, the scale it has in relation to us, the space it takes up, the line it draws in relation to architecture, um, and so forth. And he uses the word elemental in the way that Ponza uses the word primordial to talk about investigations. Richard Nonis would deny being a primitivist artist. He once wrote a long essay suggesting that art, the word art should never have a modifying adjective to it. So we shouldn't have contemporary art or primitive art or minimal art or conceptual art. That, that what art does is what art does. I'm not quite sure I believe the position, but I'll put it out there as the, the, the known as his attempt to make a work as objective fact. A fact that he couldn't find, so to speak, as an anthropological field worker. But one could think of these works as, in some sense, not art in the, with the capital A, or not art of minimal art or contemporary art or modern art, but something more like artifact. That is to say, an artifact, anthropologists or archaeologists will tell us, is a human-made or human-modified object. And one of the things that by making his way of making so simple that Richard Nonis does, is to make the question of intention and how to do it and what was done absolutely central so that we can know that significance, intention, has been added to the object by the simplest methods, by stacking one end against another, by stacking one sheet against another, by situating the endpoints of a line. That he's taken a kind of um, sim uh, simple intentional action as the subject matter of this work in its materiality or with its materiality. And you can think of these works, and this is the last thing I'll say because I understand that there's many of you and just one of me and more voices should be heard. But you can think of these works in part, I've said that they're not loud, they're not linguistic, they don't say reduced in great big letters or a rubber ball thrown into the sea or they don't have a clear square box um, or clear square cube, whatever else the fourth one says, or self-defined. But they're, they're oddly like prepositions. Then almost each of these works you could go home and describe to people how it is that you wasted your lunch hour. And you can say that you've got works that are about, there's a preposition, one thing in relation to another. At, as in at the ends, on top of, um, against, um, above, below, adjacent. The way in which one piece fits together 
or works together have to do with really making a very simple relational and indeed prepositional proposition, which is why the title of the Genoa slot is one up or one down, one up. It's it in its subtle way is a kind of instruction or at least telling you sort of linguistically um, how the works work. That would be my plea for how one might think of these as significant objects. Why they might be singled out or collected or exhibited in a museum. But they do make their status as art into a kind of problem, again, to go back to both the simplicity and the difficulty with which they start. My answers to that would be, to finish my part, sort of threefold as promised. One, because they are intentional objects because they are artifacts within a field in which, um, or in a world in, that is filled with complex artifacts from you know, coffee cups to um, automobiles. And by radically simplifying them, he makes the sense that these are human modified material objects absolutely clear uh, so that they might be significant objects. The second two is historical or uh, historical. That is, that there is an institution of art history. And while Richard Nonis might not want the adjective minimal or minimalist applied to his art, there's a history to which he belongs of sculpture moving off the pedestal, of, refu of getting rid of the idea of using bronze or marble to imitate skin or cloth, and using material as such wood, steel, to do what wood and steel does, and to step off the pedestal and into the actual space of the, the kind of physical felt space of the gallery. And the third thing, and maybe it's the summation of the other two, is that some days I would argue that these are like beautiful. They're kind of wonderful things that, you know, I would really like Salita Nord at my house. Um, and because I like the way the steel looks, I like the feeling of the weight on it, I like the line that it draws. There's a relationship of this work to drawing, not to painting in the way that Doug Wheeler's sculpture next door might be related to painting, but to drawing and a kind of line that might separate one thing from another. So those are my sort of three pleas for Richard Nonis, and that's, the, that's my half. Um, so let's open it up to questions. I'm going to take out the microphone just for recording purposes and so that people can be heard. Um, so please don't be intimidated by that. So who would like to ask a question or bring something that you've noticed to the floor and, and, and see? Go ahead. Uh, I, I certainly buy into his premise on adjectives and art because I think art is what it is. Wood is what it is. Uh, but uh, for most art, I, um, it appeals to me visually. And I'm not sure how this art is affecting me or, or what, what its channel is into me. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Okay. And I was just wondering if you can give me some uh, insights into then why I find this appealing because I don't think it's reaching me visually, but it's reaching me on some other level. Well, Ponza talks about the art in this part of the collection 
you know, in this section of the collection that's, as I understand it, coming to the Hirshhorn, or the, that is the Hirshhorns? Yeah. Um, that is the Hirshhorns, as an intellectual and a philosophical art, an art of propositions, an art of what would it mean to take this as a work of art? So works of art that do, um, as it were, make you have to go through the process of making them into a work of art. In that sense, they are the, the legacy, although the quiet, incredibly simple legacy, of something like Marcel Duchamp's ready-made, his urinal or the bicycle wheel, um, in that they require the kind of taking of the aesthetic dimension that you're used to looking at Rembrandt's or de Kooning's with and attaching it or, or testing it out on three pieces of wood. I would say that's one thing. I would, the second thing is, is that there is a, and this is much simpler, there is a real attraction that I find to things left as they are. And um, we so seldom see things left as they are, but there are people that I know who aren't artists that actually get a great aesthetic kick out of going to the back of Lowe's, or even the front of Lowe's, or to the hardware store, or other people to the stationery store. They just, there's a kind of, um, you know, leaving things alone. Frank Stella once said that he made the, the famous black paintings, that his goal in those was to keep the paint as good as it was in the can. <laughs> and I think this kind of, as it were, hands-off approach is, has an, an actual, I would say, visual attraction, but maybe we could just say sensual attraction. I could actually um, copy it if, you know, again, if I could figure out where to get the, what I assume to be three-quarter inch steel. Um, and I could. I mean, there is nothing, in, in the same way that I was saying at the very beginning, that, um, that when the preparators of the museum take this work down, they disassemble, they take it apart. It becomes three pieces of steel. And when they put it back up, they are doing the work Richard Nonis did. I mean, they are re-literally making the work new each time. So indeed, I could, other than, um, that's a very good idea. I mean, there, there, <laughs> there is clearly, um, within the art of the 20th century, and particularly that art that comes out of the legacy of Duchamp, some idea of both anyone could do it, and once it's done, there's a, there, the, the, the whole sort of, um, intellectual problem of the work or the, the question of the work of what this means as art historically gets sort of taken away or moved beyond. So if I were to, to put that in my home or put my version of it, it would become an aesthetic object, an object of appreciation, but not necessarily a historical object. Yeah, all art is intentional, but when it comes to Rembrandt, we don't worry about what, as it were, we, we might think if we have a certain kind of psychoanalytic bent, what, we're, what is he really saying, what are his real intentions. 
But intentionality is not our kind of primary way into uh, a Rembrandt or a Titian or a Leonardo um, or a Rodin or you know, take your pick. When you have work that is nothing but the inscription of intention or that borders on something, as in the case of Jackson Pollock, someplace where it's really, um, where intention, as it were, comes only at the very end, where he says all this accident, all this um, flux, um, carries in it the possibility of being a painting, and I now declare this a painting, right? So um, that it's only within the second half of the 20th century you could say that intentionality as such gets singled out as a subject matter for works of art. He, um, he does um, definitely know, the Richard Serra um, lean pieces and um, stack pieces and uh, those are from before. I mean, the, the works that, he's working out of Richard Serra and Carl Andre, you could say, um, in one form um, or another. And, um, and that at certain moments in 1972 to 74, he actually shows alongside uh, Richard Serra or Gene Heistein or Bruce Nauman um, and others. Um, and this kind of industrial, this work of the industrial and also the work that is in space that kind of addresses the space. There, there are a number of these short line works that become longer and longer and actually split architecture in half or begin to move across architectural spaces as kinds of maps. Now, this kind of work, it's interesting, it emerges historically at the moment when artists begin to move out of sort of small, cramped West Village, you know, apartment law, uh, studios and into the big industrial spaces of um, Soho. And one of the very first, what are called alternative spaces or artist-run spaces is 112 Green Street in Soho, which is just a great big expansive loft space where you can bring in, these are small Richard Nonis works, you could say, and you could bring in larger sheets of steel, huge planks of timber, or you know, put smaller planks together to make larger forms because you have industrial spaces to cover. So he comes out of that same moment and just sort of slightly behind, and with a, I would say, a slightly different project. Although, you know, you can adjust it that way. No, no, I would, I would agree that there's a way, I mean, it is a funny room to, I mean, a funny artist will put in the room with the door because, as it were, 
relatively speaking, very little is going on. And, and we do, you know, these works for me are more interesting than the works outside on the pedestals in their boxes, even the Theodore Rozak and the David Smith, which are beautiful little works. But we look at them and we're busy like looking inside those works or inside those boxes going, you know, what is this thing? You know, and it's not about us, it's about what that thing is. Whereas these works are so, in a sense, oh, uh, flat or practical that we have to kind of keep trying to figure out, we have to be making them into works of art. And that's why the door comes into play. You know, because we go, okay, do we have to make that into a work of art too? <laughs> but I think that, I mean, I would argue that there is a, that there is a reward for that thought process of thinking what is done and how it's done. Well, thank you very much for joining us. And thank you all.